Hello and welcome back to the Annick Castle podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Watkins, and on today's episode, we'll be talking about Annick Castle and falconry. We're joined by Emma from Raphael Historic Falconry to learn all about birds of prey, their history, their connection to castles, and Annick Castle in particular. It's a fascinating conversation, and here it is. Hope you enjoy. I am very happy to be joined on this episode of the Annick Castle podcast by Emma from Raphael Historic Falconry. Hello, how are you? Hello, Daniel. I'm very well indeed, thank you. Excellent. You're here to tell us a little bit about falconry, which you know a huge amount about. I think we should probably start by letting everyone know who you are and who Raphael Historic Falconry are and what sort of things you do. Yeah, absolutely. So we are known as Raphael Historic Falconry. And as the name suggests, we're special historical falconers. So we're demonstrators of falconers, but we're also interpreters of falconry history. So we combine two disciplines in one, if you like. And we've been trading as such since 1998, so for quite a long time. And we specialise in working, performing, interpreting at historic venues. So castles, abbeys, stately homes, places that uh, either have a strong connection to falconry or, of course, just a strong connection to history. So it takes us all around the country. We time travel through lots of different periods of history, which can be quite exciting. And we get to work in some very special places. Including Annick Castle, of course. Well, the finest. Oh, thank you. We won't let any of the other historic places hear that. But you you mentioned all the different kinds of places that you go to with your birds. What's the significance of falconry through English history? You mentioned different time periods. How long has falconry been an important part of life in Britain? Well, it's got quite an amazing heritage. I think generally when people think of falconry in historic context, they will automatically think of falconry in the Middle Ages, because all of those old Hollywood films that we've ever watched recounting the medieval period always have people on horseback with uh, hawks and, and falcons. And indeed, the Middle Ages is often described as the golden age of falconry. But because of the purpose and the function of falconry, it actually goes way, way further back in our human history. So as far as we know, it's been practiced for at least 4,000 years, but it's likely to have been practiced for a lot longer than that. It's just that we don't have the physical evidence remaining anymore. And that's for good reason, because although most people think falconry is a sport, it was never actually conceived for that purpose. If you break falconry down to its most base form, it is essentially about hunting. And of course, historically, it's about hunting for food. So it's using the talents of a wild predator, effectively using that predator as a hunting implement with which to catch birds and animals for the table. And that, of course, puts a whole different slant on the practice of falconry in English context. And where do castles and places like Annex start to come into that? Would falconry have been a part of castle life for hundreds of years, or was it just part of that key age of the castle in the Middle Ages? 
Well, the connection between falconry and castles, or at least nobility slash royalty, really starts in this country in the Anglo-Saxon period. And that's generally the first time that we get royal accounts and royal references of, of people hunting with birds. We didn't really see falconry arriving here in England until the Dark Ages. And it came from the continent over to us with lots of the Germanic tribes that, of course, were invading our eastern shores. So people like the Danes, the Vikings, the Scandinavians, they had been hunting with birds quite a bit longer before we had. So they first brought it over. And because it was such a rarity, it was only really knowledge that was accessible to the most wealthy members of society. So by that very virtue, it started in the beginning as a royal pursuit. So as soon as we had falconry over here, it was at castles, because of course, that's where royalty lived. And that's a wonderfully noble beginning for the art over here. Yeah, so it was royalty, nobility, the aristocracy who would keep the birds But who were the people who looked after them? Who were the falconers? Were they specially trained? Yeah, so the falconers were a different grade of people. They were, I suppose, equivalent to professional sportsmen today. They were the people that possessed the true knowledge. They were the ones that did the daily nitty gritty and the grind and the bird training and the bird keeping and the cleaning and all the rest of it. And of course, this was the feudal system. So they were working in the service and the employment of whatever aristocrat or noble they were working for. They were very highly skilled individuals. They were socially very respected and consequently, they were generally very well paid. They were few and far between because, again, that knowledge was extremely rare. And it's it was an opportunity in history for, for somebody to try and better their lives, you know, to become part of the Royal Falconry Department and to work your way up the social ladder. That's one of the first occupations where we see that actually being an opportunity open to people, which is a, a marvellous thing. So have we got records of individual falconers through history? Do we know about some of the particular people who did this job? Yeah, there are a few names that are mentioned. And I say names, there are also family names that are mentioned successively over a period of several hundred years. So this was obviously a very proud baton that was handed from generation to generation, which was often one of the only ways that you could enter the pursuit of falconry in history. So, for example, there's a family called the Dehovilles who can be traced from the early Middle Ages right through to the the dawn of the Tudor period. Do we know anything about falconry in connection to Annick Castle? Do we know whether the earls and dukes of Northumberland kept birds? We have a falconer's tower here, but was it ever used for that? You do have a falconer's tower, and that's long been a burning question. You know, were hawks or falcons ever kept in the tower? The answer to that question is, we don't know. There aren't really many records that tell us in any detail. We have snippets of falconry history in connection with Annick Castle, or more particularly with individual members of the castle. And the one who's mentioned more than any other is the fifth Earl of Northumberland. So he lived between 1477 and 1527. And he was a serving member of the the royal courts of Henry VII and Henry VIII who were both great practitioners of falconry. And so the fact that those two households were quite close, of course, means that there was some connection through the art of hunting. But what we do know comes from the Northumberland Household Book, 
which of course records the household accounts. And the hunting accounts are included in that. And we get just tiny little snippets of information. For example, we know that two shillings was paid for dog skins from which to make hawk jesses. And what, what is a jess? So a jess is the leather strap, the anklet, which goes around a hawk or a falcon's legs by which you can hold it on the fist. Now that suggests that they were making equipment on site at Annick Castle, presumably because they were housing hunting birds on site. And that's, you know, a really important source of information. We also have a little reference to a falcon being transported from Hampton Court Palace, of course, in London, all the way up to Annick, which in those days was a massive journey. We don't know why that falcon was being taken up north. We don't know whether it was a gift, whether the Earl had purchased it, whether the king was paying it to the Earl in payment for something, service or whatever rendered. But again, you know, a mammoth undertaking to transport a falcon pretty much the length of the country. Do we know what the best birds were for falconry at that time? And are there particular birds who are especially good at it now in the 21st century? Well, that's the one nice thing about the pursuit of falconry is that the people may have changed. Some of our techniques might have changed, but of course the birds have not. They've remained the same throughout. And we're really lucky here in the British Isles to have some of the best and most suitable falconry birds in the world. The two primary ones being the goshawk and, of course, the infamous peregrine falcon. And they were consistently the two favoured hunting birds throughout history. But they were flown and hunted and used in different ways for different purposes. And it's quite nice that those two birds reflect two sides of the same coin. And by that I mean that the goshawk was a bird used for catching food for the larder. So that was your hunting machine, your hunting tool that you used to catch things like duck and hare and rabbit and and pheasant that would go into the royal larders. On the other side of the coin, you have birds that were hunted and flown for sport as a form of outdoor entertainment, which hawks are no good for because they're a woodland bird. And that means that it disappears into the trees and you can't actually see it. Falcons, however, are birds of open country. They fly high, they fly fast, they're very dynamic because they chase other birds, and that made for great entertainment. Of course, the peregrine falcon is known for being the fastest creature on earth, and there you have absolutely the most superior falconry bird you could ever wish for. So both of those species were very likely to have been flown at Annick. And they're two species that we fly at Annick Castle when we work there. These are wild birds. How do you train a hawk or a falcon to hunt for you or to perform in a display? I think that's probably the greatest mystery around what we do. And we and so many other demonstration falconers make it look so easy. But actually, training a bird of prey is completely different to training any other sort of animal because in actual fact you can't train a bird of prey at all you can't teach it anything all you can do is draw out of it the instincts that naturally occur within it and that's the skill of the falconer is to unlock those instincts and draw them out so essentially the only connection that we can have with a raptor which is not an intelligent 
or a social animal is the one thing that's most important to it in life, and that's food. So we become its primary food source. And because of that, it will tolerate our presence and it will learn to work with us because we become a very easy source of food. So that bird will fly to us to take its food because that doesn't involve much effort. And as part of that process, we can introduce the bird to the idea or the concept of chasing whatever is its natural prey. So we can draw out the hunting instinct by getting it to chase what we call a ground lure. So a lure that's wrapped in fur with food tied on it, pulled along the floor that might simulate the run of a rabbit or a hare. And that will trigger the hawk's natural instinct and it will go through the motions and catch it. We can do the same with a falcon, but because falcons are bird catchers, we have to use a more aerial lure, a lure that the bird can catch out of the air. So attached to a long piece of string, we can use a lure with some feathers on it, a lump of food tied on it as a reward, and we can encourage the bird to fly around and eventually take it out of the sky. So again, we're not teaching them anything. We're just slowly prizing from them their natural instincts. And as part of that process, you're getting your bird physically fit. You're building its confidence. You're extending its knowledge and its experience. So that by the time it gets to about a year of age, it kind of knows what it's doing. And you can let it off, let it do its thing, and then hopefully recall it to you for a good hearty meal at the end of it. And how did you learn these techniques? Were you part of a a long falconry family or were you taught? I was taught. I come from uh, quite an academic family, all, all teachers. So becoming a falconer was a complete divergence. And I have to say, initially, I think it probably disappointed my parents immensely. But little did they know I was going to end up being a historical falconer, you know, working at prestigious venues and teaching people about something really important. But the way I did it was to become an apprentice, which, of course, is exactly how it happened in history. I started working at a bird of prey centre, so a public visitor centre, where for a year I had day-to-day training. I got to work with an amazing variety of species, which I would never have had access to without that lucky introduction. And of course, like with anything, when you do something every day, day in, day out, you learn very rapidly. But I should say that no falconer on the planet knows everything because every bird is different, every species is different, and that's the joy of it, is that it's a constant learning curve. And who are some of the birds that you have at the moment who fly for Raphael? Well, we try to focus on predominantly authentic or native species, of course, because we're historical recreators. So we have the peregrine, we have the goshawk, who very proudly is the only goshawk flying free at shows in the country. We have a wonderful golden eagle who we regularly bring up to Annick with us. We have a couple of owls on the team, eagle owl and a barn owl who are always very welcomed. We have some smaller birds like kestrels and merlins who are commonly used by ladies and lesser nobles in history. And then we have a few exotics like a lana falcon and a saker falcon. And the most important falcon of all, the royal falcon, the Jer falcon. So a really lovely, eclectic mixture and one that we think represents history rather nicely. And what made the royal falcon particularly 
prized or important? Well, the royal falcon or the white falcon um, is essentially a gerfalcon. The gerfalcon is the largest species of its family in the world. It comes from within the Arctic Circle. And in history, there was no domestic breeding like we do today. So all our falconry birds in the modern age have to be bred domestically in aviaries. We can't take things in the wild, of course. But in history, that is precisely what happened because there were lots of birds and very few people back then. So if you wanted to acquire yourself a gerfalcon, you would have to travel to Iceland or Greenland to go and get one. And that was a three-year expedition, massively expensive. You would literally be risking your life. And therefore, that, that falcon would command a very high price at sale point. What makes performing in a historical place a little bit different to maybe being in the open countryside? Working at historic properties is an enormous challenge. They're all different. They are all unique. And generally, they are quite busy, big places as well. So in actual fact, flying a bird there is putting a bird in a totally unnatural environment. So we have to appreciate that and we have to adapt what we do to suit every particular venue. So, for example, flying falcons is naturally an open country pursuit because they're fast flyers. They fly a long way off. They fly um, quite high. You want to have visibility of them the whole time. But if you're stood inside a castle with towering high walls and and towers all around you, then, of course, you're losing line of sight all the time. So there are some venues that we can't fly falcons at because it just practically wouldn't work. And those that we do manage to fly falcons at, like Anik, require us to have some particularly good falcons. And by that, I mean falcons that are trusted, that are reliable and that have a lot of experience under their wing. The more we work at a venue, of course, the more confident the birds get in that environment, the more variety we can then deliver at a a venue like that. But it is a challenge. Sometimes we'll work at events where we have other performers with us and they might be doing things that involve kites or balloons or fire shows or firepower like cannons and explosions. And we have to take all of that into account as well. So where we set up, where we display our birds, how we fly our birds, all of that has to go into the pre-event planning. And once you're out there and you are performing, what are some of your favourite things about doing your displays? I think it is meeting people, chatting to people and particularly chatting to people after they've seen one of our displays. Because I think most people have a pretty fixed idea of what a falconry show is going to be like. And then they come and watch our show and it blows their minds because it's delivered in a manner and a style that they've never experienced before. And it's quite magical. It's magical watching people connect the pieces of information and thread them together to make a story. And the one thing we get told time and time again is that our devotion and our our love and our care for our birds is absolutely clear and transparent. And people really genuinely appreciate that. And they feel like we've shared a very special moment in time with them. And and that's always going to be the, the best reward for what we do. You mentioned earlier you do perform various historical periods. Which of those periods is your favourite? What time do you like to go back to? Oh, 
well, we we have 12 different periods of history in our repertoire, which is quite a lot. And it starts in the very late Roman period, and it comes right up to modern times with the 1940s. So we do wartime falconry. And all of the social stories in between are all completely different. So it's, you know, it's quite fascinating, very, very rich and wealthy in information. But I have to say, out of all of those periods, the one that I love the most is Victorian. And it's because there is such a wealth of information from the 19th century. And it's not just information about falconry history. This was the great expansion of science. It was about really trying to understand the natural history of the world around us. You know, you have famous naturalists like Charles Darwin coming up with this grand theory of evolution and survival of the fittest traveling all around the British Empire and seeing birds and species that they'd never encountered before. And the tales and the stories of those adventures and how they knitted together all of these facts to come up with a much better understanding of, of nature around us is just fascinating. And it means that when we do a Victorian show, it's actually really complicated to know what to talk about because there's so much of it. It's always a nice problem to have. Always. So did falconry change a lot from the medieval and the Tudor period to the Victorian? Was it generally the same or was it almost a completely different thing by that time? The practice, so the physical art was the same, but the purpose behind it had completely changed. And that's because in in the pre-shotgun era, so Middle Ages, Tudor, which is pre-firearms, if you were hunting, the best weapon you could hand yourself with was a hawk. If, As we enter the age of gunpowder, we develop handheld firearms. That is what then replaces the hawk. Not necessarily because it was any more efficient, but because it was cheaper. And you didn't have to feed it and fly it and train it and spend a lot of time and money looking after it. So unfortunately, as we enter the age of guns, hawks and falcons become socially redundant. And it's at that stage where the art of hunting with birds starts to to drop off a little and birds are flown generally more for sporting purposes. The actual practice was no different, but to lose that social importance, of course, meant that it became a slightly less popular practice. And, and that meant it was genuine risk from from literally disappearing because the the knowledge was not getting passed on at the the level it had been in previous centuries and when you stop talking about things and passing things on then of course eventually you you lose them and that very nearly happened in the 18th century if you could pass on one historical falconry fact to people listening to this podcast it doesn't have to be one from each of the 12 time periods <laughs> But uh, if you've got one favourite historical falconry fact, what would it be? The practice of falconry has given us a much, much higher regard and a higher respect for birds of prey in general. And it's that that we mustn't lose because it's that that has enabled us to preserve and to conserve and to save the species that we have today. So... I suppose that that calls to mind a little phrase, not a fact as such, but a phrase that I read once in a book. And it said very simply that falconry is like ivy. It grows around things. 
So no matter what changes have occurred through society and history, falconry has found a way to navigate it and to stay relevant. And I think that's really important. And that is a a lovely way to end our conversation. So thank you very much indeed, Emma, for joining us on the podcast today. Before you go, if you would like to let people know where they can find Raphael Historic Falconry online and whether you will be returning to Annick Castle to perform in 2022. I believe our first visit will be at Easter over the bank holiday weekend. So if people are interested to find out what we do, then come along and see us then. In terms of connecting with us and finding out what we get up to, you've got three ways of doing that. You can go directly to our website, which is www.raphaelhistoricfalconry.com. We list all of our events for the upcoming year on our diary page, so you can see where we are. And if you want to stay in touch with us on a more frequent basis and just see what we get up to behind the scenes, then you can check in on our Facebook page where you can look us up as Raphael Historic Falconry or Instagram where we post pictures that are different to Facebook and we're on uh, Instagram as The History Birds. Excellent. Thank you very much. We will be putting the full set of performance dates on the Annick Castle website when they become available. So if you're interested in catching Raphael, head to our website, annickcastle.com, and you'll be able to find everything there. But for now, uh, thank you very much, Emma. My pleasure. Thank you. So that was Emma from Raphael Historic Falconry, and you'll be able to find out more about when they're performing their displays at Annick Castle in 2022 by visiting our website, annickcastle.com. On the next episode of the podcast, we'll be exploring another part of Annick Castle's history. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've released so far, please subscribe and leave us a review or give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please recommend us to your friends. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Annick Castle or by emailing podcast at annickcastle.com. Thank you again to Raphael Historic Falconry for their time today. I've been Daniel and thank you very much for listening to the Annick Castle podcast. We'll see you next time.